Welcome to the Metric Stack Podcast. Your hosts, Alan Villa and Lauren Thibodeau, will talk to founders, leaders, marketers, and more to uncover how they succeed with data. Whether you're struggling with data, reluctant to take the leap, or maybe you're a seasoned expert with years of experience, you'll hear stories from people like you who have used data to grow and scale their business. Solon Angel is the founder of MindBridge AI, the world's first AI financial risk discovery platform. Before founding MindBridge AI, Solon worked in Fortune 500s and startups in San Francisco, the UK, and France. He also co-founded Solink. Solon is a top 100 influencer in accounting and an active member of Fresh Founders, a nonprofit organization supporting entrepreneurs. Solon's goal as a dad and a founder is to just leave the world a better place than he found it. Solon, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Solon, you're an innovator at heart. I've known you for a, a number of years now. You've got a string of startup experiences over the past 20 years. Tell me about what's the drive behind that? Have you always been this way? You know, what brings it all together? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I, I didn't know I was that much of an entrepreneur. Like, it's a bit funny. Like, actually, one of my friends recently told me, everyone sees something and it's as if you're the only guy in the party that didn't see it. And it was like that most of my life, actually. I thought I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur particularly, yet I was, you know, reselling spreadsheets of Excel with macros when I was 16 years old, making in a week more than my father. Yet I was at 19 years old trying to incorporate a wood export business between rare woods between Brazil and France, yet I was at 22 years old in Silicon Valley doing a zero to one, right? Yet I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. <laughs> and my first job was to sell, you know, uh, stuff on trade shows when I was like 13 or 14. But yeah, it was always like that, actually. I think I was always, let's say, interested in what's next and always very, very much attracted by freedom. Uh, freedom is like a value, you know, freedom of thinking, freedom of movement, freedom of doing and i did not understand how fundamental it was a trait of my character until actually at some point i was working in a corporation making you know stepping a lot of toes making a lot of noise and one day my boss calls me in the office and it was like every time i worked for an organization within weeks i was called in an office by someone for something i did right but it always always like that i would walk in feeling i'm going to get fired for sure and then <laughs> and, and like it was always like that every year i would walk into i remember actually i was the with him he's not he's retired now but i would walk into the office of a guy called bob and he would come for the annual review right and i was like i would walk in there and i would tell my ex-wife at the time i said you know what i might have to look for another job i'm for sure getting fired you know this year and it was the joke like the barber joke like tomorrow free haircut it was like next year so it's getting fired joke right and i would walk in there and the discussion will always be me walking worried anxious because a lot of people are complaining about things i'm pushing and then he'll say look don't worry about everyone you know, being too complaining, the bottom line is positive. Here's a big bonus, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> so this is going on like for one year after another, another year. But then at some point you realize that, you know, I, I couldn't pinpoint, I was a bit of a loose cannon situation. I would just go and create value, go create new things and did not understand that this was not part of the job. Really. This was really an internal clock and an internal fire that is on all the time. And then at some point I had enough boss and mentors and one of them ended up being an entrepreneur. And to me, you know, so if you read the book on organization man, I'm like, what is that book? It's a book from the 50s, I think, or 60s, which, I mean, it's like the nightmare of every entrepreneur. It came from an era where, you know, corporate America thought that the best way to run the country and produce across industries is to be, you know, like the general motor stereotype, everyone's the same suit, same short tie, 
Mad Men style, I guess. I, I didn't watch that show, but people ex- talked a lot about it. Like that organization man, that perfectly manicured guy that looks the same with the white picket fence as his neighbor, executive going at the golf country club on the weekend all together. You know what I mean? Like really almost like the clone army. <laughs> And so he said, maybe you should think of that because I don't think that fits you. And then I read this thing and I I had like scratches on my arms reading it, right? It just felt like my body, my immune system was rejecting the concept. Yeah. So that, that is not you, Solon, a hundred percent. But obviously you've learned to harness this passion, right? This creativity and this desire to sort of do something different. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had a huge inspiration as well in my mother, right? My mother was a partly native, partly Afro-Brazilian woman that had her own company before the age of 30 under the white dictatorship. Do I need to draw a picture of how resilient and aggressive she was to succeed and to, to survive? And I've seen her, you know, make some bad decisions, have some good, like every entrepreneur, you know, there's ups and downs. But also I, I realized that actually, if you have a willpower, you can shape the world to be to your liking a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that realization when I was a kid, I remember... You know, you're six years old, you arrive in a country in Central America, nobody knows your mother. And within eight months, she raised $200,000 and organized the first carnival in this island and make the headline of the news. And after she did that, for five years, everyone recognized her, opened doors, opportunities for her, did more business with her. And he taught me the power of raising the profile around yourself very quickly. And I think, Alain, you can know where I'm going with this because you see me doing it, right? So those, you know, you're shaped by who you see when in your childhood, right? And if your mother behaves like that, the chances are that you start adopting some of it when it's successful is very high, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, with all of these ideas, I mean, you've mentioned loose cannon, you know, at the party, I'm, I'm hearing kind of bull in China shop, but you've harnessed it. How do you sort out the good ideas from the bad ideas or the ones you actually want to follow through? Because I imagine there's so many. And how did you decide to double down and start MindBridge? When you are someone that is very high energy, restless that doesn't sit in one chair the first thing you need to learn to do is to buckle up and tighten the seat belt and sit on that chair for a while and 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 see if that is a niche of the moment if it's just a frustration of the moment of the day and and you have to understand that energy you cannot just always jump on you know the thing that drives you all the time you need to be able to take distance from your own feelings it might surprise some people, but I meditate daily, right? And it's like, I can't function without it. I just need 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation to get clarity for my whole day, right? My image was actually years in the making. Literally, I was writing, I had an idea, I would write it down, write it down. And I had 17 or 18 ideas on the Microsoft OneNote tab. Um, and I, and I, I just, it never felt perfect. I just let the idea settle. I would go to it, get excited, then let it settle, come back a couple of weeks after so on and so forth. And it was not an idea. It was a list of problems I hated about the way things were done in financial risk discovery. And I just wrote down problems, problems while I was interacting in that industry. And then it sounds silly and cliche, but the first day I saw a video, it was a bootleg video of uh, DeepMind in Paris as to how there was a machine learning component that could learn repetitive tasks and do better very quickly, there's a click that happened. And all of a sudden, something like 14 or 13 out of the 18 problems I had on that list could be solved with that novel technique. That was just one year after the white paper from Toronto there um, around deep learning. And so that's that's really then uh, the moment 
I realized that years of frustration, you know, the, again, a cliche, my story is nothing special compared to many other entrepreneurs. They say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success, right? So for, I worked in the industry for almost 10 years. So a lot of problems. And then all of a sudden, there's like a novel technique, emerging technique that came up. And then all of a sudden, I became so obsessed with it, right? I, I just, I, first of all, I had promised my ex-wife um, that I would never do a startup again. Again, that's hilarious, right? It's like, it's like a guy is like natural born entrepreneur says, I'm never going to be an entrepreneur. It's, like, it's a total <laughs> joke, right? So, so I had promised my ex-wife, I'll never do a startup again. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's costing you a divorce. But I, I, and then also then I started being obsessed, right? It's just like, you've seen the light, you see the angels with the music, you see a plausible future that, and then the first thing I did is, I, so I went back to San Francisco and, and to San Jose, and then I spent three weeks there listening, not telling anyone what I had in mind, and just listening, is anyone talking about machine learning in that context? Has anyone invested in what investment are they making around machine learning? And at the time, big data and analytics just surpassed the level of VC investment and social media. Because the end of the investment in social media and the rise of investment in uh, analytics, you know, and, and other tools like that. And I remember nobody was talking about it. It's as if the Silicon Valley was completely ignorant of the world of financial reporting and risk discovery. It's like no one was investing in it. And this is when I said, okay, I have to do it, right? But that's how it came up. It was a slow process. I said, like, sometimes it's important to let ideas settle. Just don't act in the heat of the moment. And, and usually you can get clarity, right? Let's take it back to the first couple of years. So you had this idea that timing was right. You saw an opportunity. What happened in those first couple of years? Who were the, the first early customers? What were the metrics that you were watching or listening? What were the goals that you were trying to set for yourself? And first of all, there's a big decision I had made, right? Which is not to be the CEO of the company I started. I wanted my bridge to be professionally managed as soon as possible because I had witnessed my uncle, who was a businessman, shutting down an operation because there was no succession planning. And reading a lot about it, there's also that whole concept that sometimes founders are the worst enemy in terms of culture building and in terms of uh, aggressivity. And so I really wanted my bridge to be as cleanly possible, professionally managed, still entrepreneurial, but professionally managed. So then in my head, the first thing I tell myself is like, how can I raise the profile of what I do to the highest level plausible without raising the minimal amount of capital and spending the minimal amount of capital until I had three customers telling me we're interested in the proof of concept. Because when you have one, it's not enough, right? You need three to five that tell you we're interested. And by the way, I meant proof of concept, meant meaning I was going saying, I'm going to build this. It's not built. I need to know who's interested in a waiting six months for a potential delivery. The first thing I looked at is how many people were talking about the, the idea? How many people knew the name? And then also, more importantly, how much I was growing. Because at the end of the day, at the beginning, you have to have that pseudo personality cult awareness around who he is. Because when you're five people or three people, you know, the, promoting the leader of the little story does promote the story, right? It's like, you know, everybody... You know, if I ask you to quote who are the Avengers, you know them all by name, right? So you don't know if I ask you who's the production or the editor or the director or anything, nobody knows. People associate to people very easily, right? So I did a lot of noise and I was looking at how fast I was getting into specialized press, how many people were blogging or talking about it, like all those basic early signs of the big top of the funnel, right? And I, I tried to get as fast as possible to as many competitions, again, for the purpose of raising the profile of the venture, because that, that's the early pipeline building, right? So the, the other thing I was looking at is the number one reason why startups fail, right, is like 
cash. <laughs> so it's, it, it was a very conservative approach to it. One of the criteria to look for someone to come and run the operation was also to have someone of conservative nature. The first three years of the venture are crucial to be very cash aware. Like you, and by the way, in the game of venture, so I'm, a, I'm an active angel investor. Uh, I worked temporarily in a small boutique firm in the Valley early on in my career. You, you know, <laughs> raising $10 million or $100 million or a billion dollar for all I care and taking that money and go build teams and have nice looking office and all of that, that's not venture. That's not startups. That's called shopping with daddy's credit card. That, that, that's not value creation. There's actually a startup in Los Angeles that had a $3 billion valuation and raised a billion that shut down within four years with zero sales, right? Like, they, that, that just, that's not venture. That's not value creation. Right? Value creation is, you know, you put $10, how much is those dollars worth after you spend them? You get points for that. You don't get points by the amount of employees you have. You don't get points by how many people talk to you. You know, you get points by how much value, accretive value you have created, right? So in the early days that we spent a lot of time, it's like being very difficult. And especially even more, that continued when we brought another leader to help. We, we had, I mean, the employees complained a lot about it, right? We used to say that the first training of the salespeople was to convince internally someone to spend $100. <laughs> like, we, we, we just had that very scrappy culture in the first two years of the venture. It's fascinating to hear you talk about that. And, and really the ultimate goal is the value creation. In the early days, it's about top of funnel stuff, awareness and brand. And as MindBridge's success grew, how did your focus change? Like, did you start focusing on different kinds of metrics? So I think, I think we did not evolve fast enough from my perspective. We, we should have earlier made some hires and changed those perspectives much faster. COVID, of course, delayed some of that along the way. Yeah, so it changed a lot, right? It's, I mean, if, when you start being a certain size and you hire a professional management team, they want to be able to do their job, right? They want to be able to come and hire good talent and have proper budgets and be empowered and all of this, right? And that transition might be difficult for some entrepreneurs, right? Because two years ago or a year ago, I was looking at the department's budget and that budget was triple the amount of money that I had raised for the whole venture in the first year of creation. And as an entrepreneur, it hurts. It's like, it's really, you're looking at this, okay, so I could have started three migrations as well we're giving to one manager this year. Is that what you're asking me? It's like, yeah, I was like, okay. And you stay quiet, you know, because that's the rule of the game. The whole perspective changed completely. The metrics you track are completely different. All of a sudden, you don't track anymore. How many people talk to you about this? No, no. So how many people talk about us? And how many actually are converting into qualified opportunities that close with the shortest time to close as possible, right? So it changes the whole nature of what you do, how you do, and the mindset along the way. That's actually a really interesting point. So you were into a brand new space. You said that big data analytics was starting to be the next thing that VCs were really interested in, AI, machine learning. This was a hot space. MindBridge had, and I remember this, MindBridge had, and still does, had a lot of buzz. You know, you were having conferences and you were pushing the brand out there. How did that help the first fundraise? Did it change for the second fundraise? At what point were your sales, was evidence there? Tell me about those sort of pivot points. The first investors that come, it's an act of faith. Although there's noise, all these things. And I asked them back, it's like, look, I look back at what I had the first year. I would not invest in, <laughs> in what I was doing. What did you see there that others didn't see? And then they say, well, we don't know. 
but there was something about the way you guys were doing about it. Like we couldn't put a name on it, but we believed that it would be successful, right? So like at this stage, they were not, it was very interesting. Investors kind of discount PR quite a bit, right? They take it part of it, but these companies, I'm not going to name them, they were doing an amazing PR and they were fire sales, right? And then they, like their the value created was just not that high. And so investors, especially experienced startup people that have been in startup or co-founded startup, they appreciate and they respect people that know how to do PR, but they completely discount it when they're about to invest. When they're about to invest, they don't look at what you've done today. They look at what's the potential ahead and the potential return they're going to make. And this is when I have to give credit to the early sales team of MyBridge. They've done miracles with very little, right? Like we didn't have, I remember like, I think on ninth employee, she's still there, right? Like we didn't have marketing collateral, but she had a marketing undergrad. She polished up her skills and over the weekend dumped beautiful collaterals, right? This conversion of the buzz into something like not just the sizzle, but the meat as well was what attracted investors fundamentally. When you start having dozens of clients being signed up, when you start having industry recognitions, and on top of that, incredible world's first. Like for example, MindBridge is the first AI system that was used in an investigation that was part of a prosecution of someone that was a white collar criminal that ended up in jail. Mm -hmm. At the time where no one even came up with regulations or frameworks on ethical AI and everything, the judge had received such like overwhelming evidence of wrongdoing found by the AI that he discounted that it was found by an AI and just said, this by itself is evidence and nobody noticed also that an AI put someone in jail, right? And that was my bridge, right? That was like three years ago. Those things are tangible value creation assets. Those are world's first. Those are important things that I'm very proud of the team. We have one of the highest concentration of domain experts given our size, right? So if you look at someone like Rachel Kirkham and others in the team, there's frankly credit to the fact that the team and the management team knows how to recognize talent in a professional manner to really put under the hood a competency that also makes the VC look at this as like, those guys are really capable in understanding of and have high domain expertise, right? So the combination of, yes, there's buzz, but that buzz is translated in revenue. And on top of that, this is a team that is highly competent and knowledgeable about the marketplace did help. But at each stage between the C, the Series A, and the Series B, the things investors were paying attention to were completely different. I think you had the benefit and the foresight of saying, listen, let's bring in a professional management team. I think the history and the competency of that team, the buzz that you had in the market, that you had these amazing high profile stories, like that's that's amazing stuff for a seed round and a Series A round. You know, th those investors still use the crystal ball. Tell me about the Series B I imagine, I imagine that it's getting a little tighter. Now we're starting to look at data and we're starting to look at evidence. A B, B round investor come and look at it and he sees, you know, hundreds of, of clients. We're not seeing dozens anymore. You see 100, you know, clients signed up at the time and, and prestigious logos in this. That, that, that commands attention right away on the data. The other thing also, and this is, I give credit to the intelligence and to the incredible approach of a B round lead investor, right? They were very sophisticated guys. Like they, they basically did extensive due diligence. They, they called our customer and they asked incredible questions to them. And they called all the people in the industry that were not our customers. And they asked two questions. They says like, what is the priority right now for you around AI in what you do? And he says like, are you using it? And the majority said, no. And then the second question they ask is, within one, three or five years, do you plan to use it? And it was, yes, 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 yes. So like, they were very sophisticated approach. They understood that my bridge was at the right time, at the right place, with the right team. Having some 
interesting traction that could turn into something useful, right? Again, the proof is in the pudding. Quite frankly, I still feel my vision is in the er potentially early days, right? A five to six years old venture. I mean, when you look at some runs like MailChimp, 20 years and then sold for $12 billion, right? In the life of a company, five to six years is just the infancy, right? So tell me a little bit more about the culture. You're talking about this, this commercially competitive environment. How does that boil down? If you had, you know, you're, you're standing up there, you or, or Ellie, the CEO, is standing up there at an all hands. What, what is the North Star metric? What do you get people to rally around? What is the single most important metric that you say we need to hit this? So it is not the CEO anymore, but when he was the CEO, one thing that we've decided early on is to draw on our strength. And I said, okay, I'm going to be the outdoor cat. You're the indoor cat. <laughs> so, but it turned, uh, I love it. it turned out to be that Ellie also is a bit of an outdoor cat, but just in different territories. I, I used to, like, I went two or three times around the world, each time in two or three weeks streaks. Ellie will go to us across Canada and the East Coast. But the, the, the fundamental principle of that is like segregation of, of duties, right? Like, so segregation also of roles and things which enable each of us to play to our strength. But just to understand how far that commercial culture went, I used to call, say that we have, you know, three or uh, four sales leader in the company. There's like me, the CEO, the VP of sales, and the other best VP of sales we have, which was our CTO. So like, even our CTO. So the, the first thing we did is everyone in the leadership, when we were small, everyone in the management team should be able to sell. That was like a prerequisite to be part of my average. If you were not comfortable with clients, I'm sorry, you did not fit in that culture. And to the point, of course, the CTO was the first one to complain about it. And as soon as we could afford it, really not bug him anymore to go on the road and do presentation. But he was so good at it. He still is good at it. Like, I mean, uh, there's still a debate chain today where we're talking about an account and he's part of it. And that's, that's why I love the book. I love him, right? But that, that commercially friendly, I would say commercially friendly culture was very key. That being said, it was also a problem at times, right? So like there's always pros and cons in everything you do, right? The, the, the typical problem also is a commercially oriented culture. There's some stuff, not now, but like two, three years ago, some of the staff and employees started complaining that we were too matrix oriented. Everything in excess is bad, right? You can't just run a whole company as if it's a coin operated machine. And sales culture drives that, right? It's like, what are you closing now? What's the number of things? And at some point, we heard one time, two times, three times. And I remember coming back from a trip, I said, I, I sit down with two or three of the managers and we need to, to re-explain everyone, especially when we double the size of the company in time. Why are we here together? Let's not talk this, this all stuff about where are their sales. Let's not talk about what our target next quarter, next week. Let's just not talk about any number here. And talk about why is it important that we're successful commercially? Because in the purpose and the mission of why MindBridge, it matters. And so the culture, and again, there's, there's a lot of things that could have, I personally think a lot of things could have been done better, right? And it's always easy to look back, but all, you know, the reality is that we're here, we're studying, we have quite a few opportunities and things ahead of us. Um, and you know, and right now we're, we're just, I'm very proud of the evolution of MyBridge right now. It's very interesting to see. I think it's a good point. Just worth highlighting again, that idea that purpose is such a unifier, right? You can talk metrics all day long, but if people don't understand why you're pushing what the mission is, then the metrics don't make sense, right? So I think you're right. You do have to come back to why are we here in the first place? What are we making better? And these are the metrics. This is how we're going to measure it. I want to ask you a little bit, again, on the topic of the evolution of MindBridge. I have an impression, but please correct me or, or nudge me in the right direction if it's not true. Really, you started out as a solution for auditors and that expanded to other companies and that expanded to governments. And so did you actually look at different kind of segments of customers, see where 
things were growing and then doubled down. How did that evolve? My vision was always about risk discovery. Enterprise risk management and risk discovery is the reason why Squanto was incorporated, which was supposed to become audit science, which ended up actually becoming the name MindBridge because we wanted to make it as broad as possible. The only thing different is when we started, I was in the mindset, I need to go after the highest amount of sales possible as soon as possible before expanding really. And so what we were aiming at is to start with the enterprise. I was talking to governments, which we knew we would not be able to do anything. So we posed that, but starting with large corporations and banks and retailers, because I, I was trying to get uh, enough, like an enterprise value and value per deal to be right away in the six digits to show how big the market could be and raise the minimum of money possible. The thing that I completely underestimated, important was having a lot of enterprise capabilities that takes time to do. You're not going to have a sock to done in two months. <laughs> right away, we had to pivot to where the other part we wanted to address later on and make it the first one, which is professional services firms mm -hmm. right, that serve and do risk discovery in financial data analysis for those enterprise clients. And those companies, those, those organizations are smaller, have you know less complication in terms of procurement. They also have a bigger pain point because they're charged by the hour. So if you save them 20 hours out of 100 hours, that's 20% margin back to them. And that's why instead of you know starting with enterprise, we ended up starting with the professional services world. And so the work that you've done now on professional services have you now been able to productize that? Oh, of course. Yeah. Every, so, I mean, the, the, it's a dual market, right? So the, the beautiful thing about financial data analysis is you have several people, you know, how many people look at the financial statements? You have the professional services people that produces them, but you have also corporate finance that produces them. You have regulators that look at them and your banker looks at it if they want to give you a loan. It's a multifaceted market. We see to whatever we build at the core, we can, we can very easily present it in different angles which was key part of our growth, right? Solon, let me ask you another question. Data, obviously, is something that is incredibly important to MindBridge. Everything has to do with, with data these days. And at Clifolio, our mission is helping people succeed with data. If you took a look at what MindBridge is doing and the companies that you've helped, your own passion, what does that phrase, what does succeed with data mean to you? Have clarity with it, right? And trust it. The problem we have nowadays is too much data and is also a, a lot of false points that can skew a decision-making process. And you also have data that is, you know, intentionally blurred by people that do the wrong things like Wirecard, right? Massive case of frauds like that. And to me, trusting your data, having trust in the data, trusting the financial reports being presented, like it's like it's the most important thing ever. I mean, you have a look just on the on the news. When you come in the morning, you're bombarded with news. Ten years ago, you would have not. I mean, some I still see some articles being curated. And I said, this is fake. This is fake news. This is completely influenced by some state action or some company that lobbied. Like it's really now we're, we're overwhelmed with data now, and the having the ability in that noise to find the needle in the haystack. The one data point that you can trust is really important to us, right? That's interesting. I wonder if the pendulum will start swinging to the other side. If we came from a world that was data sparse but clear, now we're in this world where we're data rich, but there's a lot of noise. Are we going to move to a new world, a better world, where we've been able to figure out what really is the right kind of data? That's the, the, the premise, right, of the most important thing of AI. And again, 
then there's another problem. It's like, do you trust that AI that was not informed? Sure, absolutely, right? And then we, and we, and we, we personally, I'm very proud that the Mindbridge team invested at all times. Like, I mean, it drove me crazy, right? As an innovator, I'm like, what about this product? Why don't we launch this product? What is that? And then, like, and they're like, hey, we need to pass this certification. We want to pass this. Like, Mindbridge went as far as having several third party come look at the code and the algorithms and rate them and provide independent reviews on it every time passing with flying marks in high color which is all credit to the team for that right because my my if you let me code it would be a disaster right <laughs> like, <laughs> so <laughs> i would not be able to write one like, one script now anymore that's why you surrounded yourself with the best possible team right yeah that's what everyone should do right it's, it's like that's that's the only way you can work like actually funny enough when when we were talking to our cto i was not sure about him to be honest and I don't think he was sure about the beautiful UI I presented him was completely an in-design with clicks, which had nothing behind. <laughs> but but the one thing I remember, he's the first time he sent us an email, he says, in the signature of his email, he says, never underestimate that a group of highly committed individuals can change the world. That thing of a highly committed individuals, ideally each one with special skills, coming together to do something can, can put a dent in the universe, right? To me right now, it's... When I look at, at, at this world that we're changing, you're right. Like, so one thing I like about Clipfolio, by the way, and I remember I used to be envious of that three, four years ago, is how much time and focus you had put at creating industry-specific templates for different reports. Right? I got inspired by one of them, by the way, for one of our reports to the board, where you have like those matrix, like for the, I remember the marketing dashboard, I don't know if you still have it on your website. You had like a marketing operations dashboard based on the website traffic. And that, that's that's exactly where we need to move forward, right? People don't want to have time to build and hash and analyze. They want, okay, what's the industry doing? What's my industry doing in that space? With all the data I'm bombarded with, well, what is the intelligence here that I should be looking for? Curate that information for me so I can know how to make a decision. The more the time passes, the more data comes to us. Humans, what they're good at is thinking, being creative, making decisions. That's what we need to enable people to do, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do, and you're spot on, is be that guide, be that advisor to sort of help you with what are the best practices, what should you be looking at, what's related, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm glad you were able to bring that up and, and get that into the podcast. That's great. And and so I think I'd like to wrap up with one final question for you. And you've dropped so many gems already, Salon. My favorite might be figure out who's the indoor cat and the outdoor cat. <laughs> but is there anything you would like to leave as kind of a word of advice for other founders who are starting up specifically to help them succeed with data? If you can make data valuable again, if you can make data respected again, and, and not just enrich it, but really make it part of the conversation again, where it doesn't become an opinion fest anymore, you will succeed. Like I look at companies like Canvas.io or Raven Telemetry or PayShepherd or others that, that really curate, but also bring back trust and orient people towards taking action that are positive with removing biases. I think that's very powerful, right? Solon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Everybody, Solon Angel, a founder of MindBridge, visionary, influencer, and innovator. Thanks so much, Solon. Thank you very much for having me today. I hope I didn't say too much idiocies and uh, that people would have found it entertaining and useful. A hundred percent. Those are the things that make it memorable, right? Absolutely. Thanks, Solon. If you enjoyed today's conversation about metrics and data, be sure to check out Metric HQ our online resource for the metrics that matter most to you and your business.